Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Road to Disunion. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak and turn to the first slide, Why Start in 1877? There are any number of reasons why to start here, and in many ways, this is the emergence of modern America. For one, the National League is created in 1876, and baseball becomes America's pastime. In addition, the first great jazz musician, Billy Bolden, was born in 1877, and both baseball and jazz represent how American spectator sports and American popular music would transform world culture. Third, there were technological innovations like the first telephone switchboards and Thomas Edison's phonograph, both introduced in 1877. Fourth, the soldiers guarding government buildings in Louisiana and South Carolina marched away to finish the Great Indian Wars and confront labor union strikes in the North. This allowed for redemption, segregation, and disfranchisement to emerge triumphant. In 1876, Custer will be routed at Little Bighorn, but despite this setback, the Indian Wars will end the following year. In that same year, the country will be racked by the great Union strikes against harsh business practices, presaging the changing relations between labor and capital that we still wrestle with to this day. While all of these are good reasons to begin the course in 1877, I believe that in order to understand the history of the 20th and 21st century, you must understand the causes and conduct of the Great Civil War. So this week, we are going to explore the road to disunion in the American Civil War before delving into the period we will be covering for the rest of the semester. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Road to Disunion. You could make the argument that the foundation of this country, with slavery protected by the Constitution, was a cause of the Civil War. Others might argue that it came much later in the 1850s, but I want to show a longer process. First, the Constitution protects slavery in three places. Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3, known as the Three-Fifths Clause, says that for the purposes of representation, Slaves will be classified as three-fifths of a person. This provision greatly enhanced the political power of the South and ensured the spread of slavery. Article 4, Section 2 is called the Fugitive Slave Clause. Quote, No person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof escaping into another shall in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on the claim of the party to whom such labor may be due. End quote. In other words, northern states were forced to return southern slaves, even if their laws forbade them from doing so. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a violation of northern states' rights. The last provision is Article 1, Section 9, the International Slave Trade Ban, 
This provision said that the international slave trade could not be banned before the year 1808 and thus gave protection to international slave traders. Despite these provisions, Southerners wanted stronger federal protection for slavery and not states' rights. In fact, Southerners decried Northern states' rights, which said that Northerners should not have to bear the burden of the encroachment of slavery or the requirement to hunt down escaped human beings and return them to their masters. Thus, the stage was set for future disagreements about the role of the federal government in protecting slavery. Another key event came when James Madison and Thomas Jefferson wrote the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions in response to the Alien and Sedition Acts during the presidency of John Adams. These documents said that a state could nullify federal law and articulated for the first time the theory of nullification, which became the cornerstone of secessionist thought for the next 60 years. The next event is the end of the international slave trade, which meant that the internal slave trade became extremely profitable for the upper southern states and was crucial to slavery's expansion into the old southeast, and southerners will hate any attempt to curtail slavery's expansion. For a few decades, the slavery issue lay mostly dormant in national politics until the territory of Missouri applied for statehood in 1819. Due to President Thomas Jefferson's acquisition of huge swaths of territory in the Louisiana Purchase, Americans, both freed and unfreed, flooded into the territories like Missouri. By 1910, Missouri had reached the required population to apply for statehood, and the issue of slavery's expansion came front and center once again. Northerners wanted to keep slavery out of the territories, not because they liked African Americans, but because they wanted to keep the area open to small white farmers who could be forced out by competition with large plantations. Southerners decried this and cited the Fifth Amendment, which protected property rights. The debate was resolved during the Missouri Compromise in 1820. This compromise let Maine enter as a free state and Missouri as a slave state, keeping the balance of power between the free and slave states and the United States Senate. In addition, this compromise said that no territory above the 3630 line, which is the southern border of Missouri, would be allowed to establish slavery within the Louisiana Purchase territories. Thus, slavery was swept under the rug in the national debate for another decade. The theory of nullification came back with a vengeance during the nullification crisis of 1832. Southerners hated tariffs because they hurt their export-focused economy. But what did these men export? Cotton produced by enslaved African Americans. South Carolina was incensed by Andrew Jackson's refusal to repeal the Tariff of 1828, which was known as the Tariff of Abomination, and thus South Carolina nullified the federal law. 
Jackson was angry at the affront to his national authority, and he had Congress pass the Force Bill, which allowed him to call up the army and to enforce the laws in South Carolina. In response, South Carolina armed, but found that they had no support among the other southern states, as slavery was not firmly entrenched in the Deep South, and the Upper South wanted a compromise. In the end, a compromise to reduce the tariff was reached by Henry Clay, and South Carolina repealed its nullification of the tariff. But for good measure, they nullified the force bill, which Jackson ignored. South Carolina learned an important lesson. Never approach secession or nullification again alone. Between the Missouri Compromise and nullification, politicians realized that the slavery debate could destroy the Union. In an effort to stop the debates over slavery, politicians introduced the gag rule in Congress, which forbade the discussion of abolitionist petitions as well as the censoring of the mail. Political parties during the second party system were structurally designed to ignore the issue of slavery, where it would quietly fester for decades. While this was going on, white Americans continued to push westward as politicians and editors called for Manifest Destiny or America's March to the Pacific Ocean in the eventual God-ordained domination of the continent. This caused white citizens, states, and the federal government to push for Indian removal across the Old Northwest and the Old Southeast into an Indian territory, which is modern-day Oklahoma and parts of Arkansas. This territory in the southern states, like Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, and Louisiana, was called the Deep South and was perfect for cotton cultivation harvested by enslaved African Americans. Planters from these states eventually migrated into Mexican Texas, and when Mexico attempted to outlaw slavery there, the Anglo-Texans rebelled and won their independence from Mexico during the Texas Revolution. A few years later, America and Mexico fought a war over the fate of Texas from 1846 to 1848. In the aftermath of the conflict, the United States annexed what became known as the Mexican Cession. This territory lay outside the Louisiana Purchase, and thus the Missouri Compromise did not apply to it. The fight over slavery's extension into the territories was thus reignited. Civil War almost broke out in 1850 over this question, and to resolve the conflict, Clay and Stephen Douglas passed the Compromise of 1850. This compromise allowed California to enter as a free state in exchange for a stronger federal fugitive slave law, and popular sovereignty would be applied in the Mexican Cession. Popular sovereignty stated that a territory in the Mexican Cession could vote for whether or not it wanted to be a free or slave state, because democracy couldn't possibly make things any worse. Well, they were wrong. Both Northerners and Southerners hated the Compromise of 1850, and it just narrowly passed the Senate and House of Representatives. In the North, Northerners would fight the Fugitive Slave Law with personal liberty laws, which argued for Northern states' rights, 
This meant that Northerners did not have to help Southern slave catchers in their own states, and that the federal law could not supersede state laws. In response, Southerners decried these states' rights laws. They hated Northern states' rights, and so they advocated a stronger federal protection for slavery. In turn, some Northerners helped escaped slaves reach freedom. Others openly fought abolitionists, but most focused on their own issues in an ever-changing nation. Southerners also reacted harshly to what they viewed as abolitionist agitation, like Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. This book about Southern slavery brought home the horrors of the institution into northern living rooms and changed all who read it. It became a national bestseller and galvanized more abolitionist support for the cause, and Southerners resented its moral implications about the sin of slavery. The slavery issue was once again united in the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Stephen Douglas wanted to get a transcontinental railroad built through his home state of Illinois, and in order to do that, he needed to organize the Kansas Territory as quickly as possible. To do so, the Kansas-Nebraska Act would allow Kansas to vote on the basis of popular sovereignty for whether or not it wanted to become a slave state. This would effectively repeal the Missouri Compromise, which was revered by Northerners for saving the Union. Pro- and anti-slavery men flooded into Kansas territory, and as a result, these men fought each other in vicious combat for nearly six years before the Civil War ever began. This flooding of the Kansas territory and the fights between these men became known as Bleeding Kansas and more than 250 men were killed and several hundred wounded, as well as a million dollars worth of property damage inflicted. During this fighting, a man would become especially infamous, called John Brown, and along with his sons, he hacked several pro-slavery men to death with broadswords at the Potatomi Massacre. Violence like this was endemic between all sides concerned. By the way, there is an upcoming Showtime series called The Good Lord Bird starring Ethan Hawke about John Brown, and I cannot wait for it to come out. In the midst of this conflagration, the Sumner-Brooks affair occurred in Washington, D.C. Charles Sumner gave an impassioned and mean-spirited speech against the violence in Missouri and slavery in general. During his speech, he called out South Carolinian Senator Andrew Butler and insulted him as a slave owner and even his speech stutter. Butler's nephew, Preston Brooks, watched from the gallery and decided to confront Sumner. Days later, Brooks approached the seated Sumner and beat him with his cane until Sumner lay bloody and in conscience. Violence over slavery had reached the highest chamber of Congress, and congressmen and senators armed themselves for potential violence. In response, Southerners sent Brooks new canes, and Northerners derided supposed Southern honor as nothing more than violent intimidation. On the heels of this, the Supreme Court Chief Justice Roger Taney wrote the Dred Scott decision, in which he said, quote, Blacks had for more than a century 
before been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations, and were so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, end quote. Taney's decision also said that Dred Scott, the man who petitioned for his freedom, was not free, and he had no right to sue in court since African Americans could not be regarded as citizens. Taney further ruled that the Fifth Amendment said that a person could not be deprived of property without due process of the law, and thus citizens could not be prohibited from taking their property into the territories. Thus, Congress never had a right to ban slavery in the territories, and Congress could not allow territorial legislatures to ban slavery either. As a result, the Missouri Compromise was basically declared unconstitutional, and there was no longer any room for compromise. With the country increasingly divided, this was only increased by John Brown's raid. Brown had been a violent abolitionist who attempted to cause a slave insurrection by seizing the federal arsenal at Harpers Ferry, Virginia. His plan failed, and he was captured by troops under U.S. Colonel Robert E. Lee. At his trial for treason, Brown declared before the court, quote, Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of ends of justice and mingle my blood further with the blood of my children and with the blood of millions in the slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, submit, and so let it be done. End quote. Later, as Brown walked towards the cart that would take him to the scaffold where he would be hung, he handed a note to a guard, which said, quote, I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood, end quote. Northerners called him a martyr, and Southerners declared that he was a traitor and a murderer. And in response to this raid, Southerners quickly reinvested in their militia system, which would give them an edge early on in the Civil War. The final straw for white Southerners was the election of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was a moderate Republican from Illinois who only pledged to oppose the expansion of slavery into the territories, but promised not to touch it where it already existed. In the election of 1860, Lincoln did not appear on a single ballot in the southern states, and despite this, he still won the election with 43% of the vote due to a divided Democratic ticket. In the minds of white Southerners, they saw their political power as now tenuous because a northern sectional candidate could win an election without any southern support. But they forgot that they still owned the Supreme Court and had equal parity in the Senate and held a sizable amount of congressional power. Despite this, zealots pushed for secession. This was the moment that South Carolina had been waiting for, and they seceded in December of 1860. But the question remained, if anyone else would follow. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Debating Secession. Lincoln's election convinced many Southerners that they no longer held a voice in the federal government. In other southern states, secession conventions were held 
and were attended by secessionists also called fire eaters. Their opponents were known as cooperationists, who desired some discussion before immediately pursuing this radical measure. However, not all white Southerners wanted to hold these conventions, like in Arkansas, where only a bare majority of supporters managed to pass a secession convention. But at the convention itself, the Unionists dominated for the first part of the proceedings and managed to stave off a vote for secession. Examples in the Deep South also show how secession was not initially popular, like in Georgia, where the first vote on secession did not contain a clear majority. It was only after politicking inside the convention, where many cooperationists were flipped by their secessionist counterparts against the will of constituents that allowed Georgia to finally secede. Alabama was the same, where secession was just barely passed, 61 to 39 delegates. In each southern state, militias were called out and usually used to intimidate opponents and rig the election, so this was a very undemocratic process. In fact, in only one state was there a popular or direct election for secession. This was in Virginia, and we will talk about it in a moment, but the point to take away is that secession was never popular and was deeply divisive within every southern state. Regardless, by February 1861, six states had seceded, including Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas, which joined South Carolina. At this point, there is a divided South. Eight southern slave states still remained in the Union, the Upper South containing Arkansas, Tennessee, Virginia, and North Carolina, and the border states of Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware. Thus, white Southern support for secession was never guaranteed. Now, while all of this go is going on, James Buchanan remained the president until March 1861. Buchanan had declared secession illegal, but said that the national government did not have to make the seceded states return. While Buchanan did nothing, the seven seceded states met in Montgomery, Alabama, and formed the Confederate States of America. As further proof that the Confederacy was simply made to protect slavery, the Confederate Constitution was exactly like the U.S. Constitution, except that it prohibited tariffs, it outlawed the international slave trade, and said that no law could be made that could ever infringe upon slavery in the Confederacy. The rebels ended up electing the Mississippi Senator, former Secretary of War, and Mexican War veteran Jefferson Davis as president, and he himself owned over a hundred slaves in Mississippi. So now we have Davis at the head of one rebel government, and Lincoln at the head of the legitimate American government. Let us now look at the divergent ideas of these groups of people in order to see why the Confederacy was built to protect slavery. So please advance to the next slide entitled, The First Inaugural Address. When Lincoln took office in March 1861, he wanted to keep the peace but protect the Union. So let us look at his first inaugural address. Quote, I have no purpose directly or indirectly, 
to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. In your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, and not in mine, is the momentous issue of civil war. The government will not assail you. You can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors. You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, while I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. Then, Lincoln appealed to their shared humanity. Quote, We are not enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to the living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of union, what again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. End quote. When Lincoln referred to the mystic cord of memory, he wanted people in the southern seceded states to feel like they were still Americans as long as possible. Now, let us compare this with the Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens' speech, so please turn to the next slide. On March 21st, 1861, Stevens declared that, quote, The new Constitution has put at rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institution of African slavery as it exists among us as the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. Next, Stephen took aim at Jefferson's notion that all men were created equal, and said, quote, Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, and that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This our government is the first in the history of the world based upon this great philosophical, physical, and moral truth. End quote. Thus, to elite white Southerners, the Confederacy was founded to defend the sin of slavery. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Mississippi and Texas Ordinance of Secession. Now, what are the arguments of these documents? Go ahead and read them, and then come back to this slide. Okay, so you've read them? Well, as you should have seen, they argue that slavery is a good thing. They argue that African Americans are racially inferior. They argue that the Constitution protects slavery, and that the North was not honoring the fugitive slave law. They decried abolitionist agitation. They claimed that the North was trying to foment slave insurrections. And they flat out say that African Americans cannot be equal to whites. So when you are working on your secession convention analysis, you should highlight these arguments. Please advance to the last slide entitled, Civil War. In a last-ditch effort at peace, several members of Congress attempted to make a compromise, including Senator John J. Crittenden of Kentucky, who proposed the Crittenden Amendments. These amendments would have allowed slavery in the territories, but would have prohibited it north of the 3630 line. 
the old Missouri Compromise line. It also would have given full federal protection of slavery south of that line, quote, hereafter to be acquired, end quote. And in this case, they meant Cuba. You see, no fewer than four times during the 1850s had Southerners proposed to annex the island of Cuba and to extend slavery there. Crittenden's amendment was a nod to these efforts and shows that any compromise would have taken Southern slavery into the Caribbean. Regardless, Lincoln rejected these compromises, and all hope was now gone. Lincoln knew that he was elected on the principle of the non-extension of slavery, and if he wanted to keep his job, he could not go back on it. Lincoln also did not want the United States to become an empire of slavery in the Caribbean and eventually South America. With compromise at an impasse, some cabinet members searched for ways to avoid war and bring the Union back together. And Secretary of State William H. Seward believed that the only way to get the country back together was to declare war on France, Great Britain, or Spain in order to excite American passions and forget domestic quarrels. While Lincoln did want some Southerners to remember that they were Americans, he was not willing to risk a war with Europe to do so. While all this went on, the American flag still flew over some United States forts in Confederate territory. But by the time of Lincoln's inauguration, the U.S. only controlled four forts because of sequestration. Southerners began the process of sequestration or the confiscation of federal property like money, equipment, arsenals, and even the private property of Northerners and Northern businesses all over the South. And this would greatly anger Northerners. And isn't it amusing that the Confederate States of America was formed to protect slave property, and yet here they are confiscating Northern or Federal property paid predominantly by Northern tax dollars. Regardless, by April 1861, only two forts remained in Federal possession. Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina, and Fort Pickens in Pensacola, Florida. Now, the Civil War actually could have started earlier, on January 9, 1861, when a Union ship, the Star of the West, was fired upon by South Carolina as it tried to resupply the garrison at Fort Sumter. But since it was not damaged, Lincoln ignored the provocation. And so you should see, South Carolina is trying to start a war at all costs. By April, two months had gone by since the formation of the Confederate States of America, and the Upper South still seemed no closer to secession. So South Carolina decided to force the issue, before the other southern states got cold feet. An ultimatum was issued to the fort to evacuate by April 12, 1861. This never occurred, and so at 4.30 a.m. in the morning, Confederate batteries opened up on Fort Sumter. The bombardment lasted over a day, and despite the terrific cannonade, no Union soldiers were killed. But the gauntlet had been thrown down, and as New York lawyer George Templeton Strong related, quote, So civil war is inaugurated at last. God defend the right. End quote. Following the Battle of Fort Sumter, Lincoln declared that the Confederate states were in a state of rebellion. 
and he called on the governors of the states to supply 75,000 volunteers for 90 days of service to put down the rebellion, and he also declared a blockade of southern ports. Lincoln was hoping that the Upper South would remain loyal, but this was a mistake. In response for his call to troops, the Upper States seceded, bringing the Confederate States of America to 11 total members. Many Southerners could not bring themselves to go to war with other Southern states, and Lincoln's call for volunteers had been the breaking point. But again, this was not a popular process. Virginia's convention passed an ordinance of secession of 88 to 55, which is not a majority. But they then put it up for a popular referendum, the only Southern state to do so. And it did pass 128,000 to 32,000, but all of the votes from the Unionist counties, especially in Western Virginia, were mysteriously lost. This, combined with the fact that the Confederate militia was watching, meant that these votes were rigged and intimidation reigned as any dissenter was punished. As a result of having their votes ignored and regressive tax policies put on Western Virginians, those Virginians ultimately seceded and formed the state of West Virginia which was admitted to the United States in 1863. However, the border states never officially seceded, though they were intensely divided. Missouri, Kentucky, and Maryland sent troops to both sides of the conflict, and both were ravaged by guerrilla conflict. And there were many Southerners who did not support the Confederacy, including over one million white Southerners who would serve in Union armies, and 4 million African-American slaves who were clearly against the Confederacy. That is all I have for you for today. We will pick up next time with a brief description of the Civil War, and then we will move on to Reconstruction. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.